Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. I will say it is probably 20 degrees cooler than it was the last time we gathered. But with Kara and I, we somehow, even through and during the gray days, we seem to bring the rainbow, the sunshine, and the heat because the topics that we discuss are always in fashion. How are you? I was going to say, we're always bringing the heat, Gerard. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Um, yeah, we've got a great guest today and a lot of, um, well, speaking of heat, hot topics to discuss. I've got one, Gerard, that I want to get right to because I really want your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. Um, are you watching this, what some are calling sort of this, um, we're just now noticing it loophole in the latest federal stimulus package in the um, American Rescue Plan. No, that, enlighten so, me. Well, um, I've, I've seen a couple articles about this in the past couple of days. So this one that I'm looking at right now is from the Wall Street Journal entitled Democrats to States, No New Tax Cuts. And this is an opinion piece about the fact that um, in the American Rescue Plan, um, there is what, what this opinion person is calling a political gut punch, says the article. The bill explicitly bars states from cutting taxes. States shall, quote, shall not use the funds, the bill says, to either directly or indirectly offset a reduction in the net tax revenue. So some of that language sounds, I don't know, like Massachusetts Blaine Amendment or something like that. But, but the concern <laughs> here, the concern here for, um, for, you know, for myself, probably for you, for many of the people that we've had on this show is, could this affect the ability of states to enact tax credit programs? that would allow folks to do things like make donations in exchange for a tax credit and their money would be used to provide scholarships for kids to attend private schools. And I don't think that the jury is in on that yet, on whether this really means that that could happen. But certainly there's a lot of speculation here and, and something to watch because at last count, I mean, man, I can think off the top of my head of just like 12 programs right now um, in being proposed in different state legislatures that would allow kids to access different educational options uh, using a tax credit scholarship. So have you ever seen anything like this before, Gerard? Because, you know, uh, not not that you're old, my friend, but you're certainly far wiser than I am. Old old is fine. Uh, (laughs) That's fine. So amongst the people you're talking to right now, do they think that this was a or, or in run Getting I mean, without basically saying, you know, what we know, they don't like private schools and therefore you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't nobody nobody that I've talked to yet has said that this is really just exclusively about private schools. I mean, I think that this is about the fact that, you know, if you really read the American Rescue Plan, I mean, even right in those provisions that sends all this gajillions of dollars down to schools, it's all about like provision, maintenance of equity and effort, right? So I think that you could see it as the larger picture here hmm. is that, you know, they, they want states to keep bringing in revenue. Like, you know, we don't want you to use this new money to... um to, to essentially, you know, supplant. Um, yep. But yeah, yeah. Some of my more skeptical friends are like, oh, this is just hating on private schools. But we use tax credits for lots of stuff, including private mm-hmm. school tuition. So mm-hmm. I will uh, see. I rely on you to educate me on the on the latest with this stuff, because I have not actually cracked one page uh, of the bill. I just, you know, well, God bless you, my friend. You <laughs> things here and there. Well, see, now, if you're saying that, then the story that I'm going to share, I think, is uh, equally interesting as it relates to money. And this one is from Carl Smith, who's at Governing Magazine. And I have 
read Governing for many years, a title, Many Stressed K-12 Education Workers Consider Changing Jobs. And so after a year basically reshaping teaching and learning because of COVID-19, a new report from the Center for State and Local Government Excellence um, found that 40% of the teachers are actually thinking about changing jobs. And when you do a deeper dive, 60% of the education workers believe they're at risk of COVID-19 exposure compared to uh, 38% of other government employees. 60% of the, those in education have, have expressed concerns about keeping their families safe from contact, uh, contacting the virus compared to 40% in other sectors. Now, you'll get this one. Almost three-fourths of uh, K-12 employees are women. And one survey is finding that this particularly underscores the disproportionate impact that it's having on women and professional women who also work. Sometimes they both go hand in hand. I'm going to get an amen from you. And this is playing into what people are thinking. Now, how does this relate to local government and money? Uh, I actually didn't know this fact. Uh, Approximately 58 percent of all local government workers are, in fact, employed with the school system one way or another. And when you're taking a look at, you know, possibly almost half, uh, well, 40 percent of half your people thinking about changing jobs, that's going to have an impact upon the classroom uh, because at some point doors will open. And we already have a teacher shortage. And we know every year when schools open in September or August, they're always uh, not always many are scrambling to fill those seats. So this could be a major impact because if people change jobs or leave the profession and not aren't working, uh, that's loss of tax revenue and other goodies. But uh, this isn't good. And I will say the report also says that of the, you know, we had what, $54.3 billion given to schools in the December package. Uh, of the $1.9 trillion that was signed recently, $126 billion more uh, are going to go to schools. So there's a lot of money trickling down to schools, but you you brought up a point about what this could look like in the real world. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to say it's a lot of money trickling down to schools is, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, you can't keep using the word unprecedented because it just gets really annoying, right? But this is insane amounts of money trickling down to schools. This package, like LEAs stand to get almost double in this package than they did in the first two stimulus combined. I mean, like, like they're going to get more than they've gotten in Title One funding, you know, <laughs> in a year. So it's it's really huge. But I think that you know to hear those statistics is really staggering. And I have to say, I'm sure all of us know. I mean, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on. I'm gonna take take up what pick up what you're putting down in terms of the working mom thing. Um, yeah, a lot of most of the educators in this country are women, and that would stand to reason that many of them are going to be mothers. And given the structure of our society, yeah. They're trying to educate other people's children while probably educating their own children from home and combine that with the anxiety and stress that that we're all experiencing, um, you know, coupled with pressure, pressure, pressure that um, goes on with regard to reopening schools and stuff. You can understand why people are stressed out and thinking about making different decisions. So why don't we hope and suggest that states and districts think very carefully about, you know, making strong one-time investments using this money um, in order to bolster the profession, in order to mm-hmm. support the people who are doing the work. I mean, so that's one thing that I think we could all all be thinking about. All right, yep. Gerard. 
Well, we have got um, yet another scholar. We're, we're the show of scholars coming up after this. We are going to be speaking with Dr. Catherine Tempest. She is coming to us from the UK, and she is a Cicero scholar. So um, excited to hear from her right after this. And Learning Curve listeners, we are here with Dr. Catherine Tempest. She is a reader in classics and ancient history at the University of Roehampton in London, United Kingdom. She specializes in the literature, history, and political life of the late Roman Republic. She is the author of two books, Cicero, Politics and Persuasion in Ancient Rome, and Brutus, The Noble Conspirator, which won the Outstanding Academic Title for 2018 Award, sponsored by Choice. Uh, Dr. Tempest, welcome to The Learning Curve, and thank you for spending this time with us today. Thank you for inviting me. We're very excited to have you here. We always have such um, such wonderful guests on The Learning Curve from which we learn so much. So Gerard and I are pretty excited to dig in here to, to your great work. And I, I want to start with a quote that all of the ages of the world have not produced a greater statesman and philosopher united in the same character. And this was this is John Adams um, writing about ancient Rome's Marcus Tullius Cicero. Um, other extraordinary figures across history, including St. Augustine, John Locke, and Winston Churchill have said much the same thing. So we would love for you to tell our listeners, why is it that Cicero and reading about Cicero and appreciating Cicero is so fundamental to understanding Western civilization? Absolutely. That's uh, quite a list of names. Um, my yeah. personal favourite <laughs> my personal favorite is still John Quincy Adams, who thought that to live without having a copy of Cicero to hand was like being deprived of, a, of an entire limb. Um, he said yeah. the same thing of Tacitus, of course, just for Tacitus fans out there. Um, but there are probably two prongs to the concept of Western civilization that need unpacking here to appreciate Cicero's importance. And I mean, the general idea has long roots, right? There was certainly a sense in the Middle Ages that the best of Greek culture had uh, passed into Western Europe by way of Rome. And here we might find one answer to your question, which is that Cicero was seen as a pivotal figure in this transmission of ideas. After all, he says in one of his own philosophical works, the Tusculan Disputations, that he wants to translate the wisdom of the Greeks into the Latin language. And this act of translation, as well as the unique contribution Cicero added to the thinking of his Greek predecessors, meant that a tremendous amount of material was uh, passed on to later antiquity for, for readers like St. Augustine, who you've just mentioned, who was uh, very well versed in, in the Latin classics. So the language of Latin is a bit easier to access. So he acts as this, that second, that, 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 that important point of transmission. But in his lifetime, Cicero also dealt with big questions, okay, ranging from rhetorical theory to the ideal statesman, uh, political thought, the best constitutions, and and how communities can and and, and should work in harmony. And so here kind of lies the the second answer, which has to do with ideologies of freedom and and equality. As I said, I'm I'm unpacking this idea of of Western civilization as as I think this through, because Cicero's ideas of natural law find a counterpart of sorts in the kind of Lockean liberalism that emphasized 
um, humankind's natural right to things like life or, or liberty and, and property. I wouldn't say Cicero was a natural advocate for human rights, but this is sort of like how later thinkers are working with his material. And John Locke was tremendously inspired by Cicero's moral and political philosophy. And, and in turn, his liberal philosophy had a profound impact on everyone from the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers to French and American revolutionaries. So here I think we're at the heart of the construct of Western civilization, the idea that there is some sort of heritage and an object of study and a culture shared by those of us in, in Europe and the Americas. And this particular way of thinking about Western civilization is, is more of a modern construct, more of a modern concept. It really emerges in the context of 19th century imperialism and it and it picked up currency in the 20th century in particular with the end of fascism in in Europe after the second world war so at this time the east west contrast gains extra significance as, as new rival global powers emerged so western civilization this idea is something that binds us in the west against those in the East. And, and these kind of us, the inheritors of a Western culture versus them narratives can can be quite dangerous and, and quite divisive. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is probably what Churchill learned. Uh, you mentioned Churchill. So this is probably what he learned by applying himself to the study of powerful political oratory. So for Churchill, uh, thinking about this liberal tradition that we, we can trace back through Cicero's uh, political thought, it's more persuasive to think in terms of either a regime of liberty or a regime of, of slavery. But to go back to your question, really, reading and appreciating Cicero can help us in two ways. On the one hand, when we do go back to Cicero, it can help us understand the origins and the shared values behind this thing we call Western civilization. And these are ideas of, of tolerance, for example, or liberty and the uh, importance of rational argument. But on the other hand, it can help us appreciate that these values can flourish in environments that are also alien to the modern states that we inhabit. So the Roman Republic in which Cicero lived sometimes has a tendency to feel quite familiar to us. But it, it, was, it was really very different. It was, it was violent. It was under-policed. There was little by way of social justice. So the values that we think of as underpinning Western civilization are, are much more universal. They're not just owned by the West and they can potentially unite. And I think that's a, a positive message to take away. It's, it's Western civilization, but it's, it's much more than that um, as to why he's so important. Well, well, sure. And, and it, which brings to mind, you know, he wrote about um, things like friendship and old age and death and grief. And you've already mentioned oratory, right? Yeah. So uh, these things that, of course, uh, cross civilizations and cultures and time and people. Can you talk a little bit about how his writings and his 900 letters could be used to teach young people today about what it means to live a good life? Yeah, this is going to be a, a, a hard one to answer quickly. <laughs> um, Cicero was hugely prolific. Um, he had immersed himself in the study of Greek philosophy in his youth, and he wanted to make his mark as a literary figure in part by sharing with his fellow Romans the ideas he had found in Plato, Aristotle, and, and other great thinkers. It's something I always tell my students, actually. The, the Romans really admire the Greeks, 
but this is something in Latin literature generally. They want to outdo them. Um, if Homer has given the world the Iliad and the Odyssey, then Virgil wants to create the epic to rival them. So Cicero sees his kind of finds his counterpart um, in in the, the the philosophical thinking. And so in his work on friendship, for example, which you mentioned, he's at times very clearly indebted to Aristotle's uh, works. Um, the Nicomachean ethics is, is one that he draws on uh, because this had explored the theme of how individuals should uh, effectively lead their best lives. And in the course of this discussion, Aristotle had touched on difficulties that might arise when you have to weigh up duty, for example, uh, what do you do when you've, you've got competing demands on you from a friend on the one hand um, and something else like justice um, on the other? So quite big things. Um, mm. And this was a topic that was understandably quite a hot topic when Cicero composed on friendship, and which is datable to the months after Caesar's assassination. So Cicero appropriates this idea, we might say, but he does so for his own purposes uh, to help us evaluate friendship, because you can only weigh up those competing claims when you understand what friendship is. And this is a pattern of Cicero's use of Greek philosophy that we see elsewhere, because he goes beyond his predecessors and he produces really compelling guides to life. In the case of On Friendship, it's a guide to recognizing, appreciating and maintaining true friendship. Uh, it goes beyond the idea of what someone can do for you and, and true friendship is about having kindred spirits. Um, so as for the competing claims, that's a, an idea he developed later the same year in a treatise on duties, which uh, treats various obligations to the state, the community, our family and friends, as, as, as well as things like personal safety. But many of his other works belong to this later period of his life. So we're talking here around 45 to 44 BC. By then, Cicero was in his early 60s and he had experienced great personal and political losses. Um, he was twice divorced and now living alone. Um, in 45 BC, 45 BC, he had tragically lost his uh, daughter, Tullia, who he deeply adored. Um, and she died as a result of childbirth. And, and Cicero was devastated. Um, meanwhile, his son was out studying in Athens. Um, I don't think his son was studying quite as hard as Cicero would have liked, which might be why he wrote a <laughs> treatise on, on duties. We hear stories of parties, okay? <laughs> He's having a great time out there. He's not taking after his philosophical father. Um, so to add to that, he had lost friends in the recent civil war. Um, his political influence had been cut short by the dictatorship of Caesar. And he continued to feel sidelined for several months, even after the assassination. It's, it's only at the end that he comes back with a force. So it's in this context that he threw himself into some of the other topics that you mentioned. He wrote about old age as a natural season of the life cycle. And, you know, he, he recognized its limitations, but he also emphasized its, its benefits, the benefits it could bring, such as experience and wisdom. So it, it's, it's going to help us all um, as we go through these life changes um, in, in many ways. And he also gives advice, you know, to ex exercise the mind, to find pleasure in whatever makes you happy. And, and he uses the, the example of, of gardening. As, as I said earlier, sometimes we can find him so tremendously on topic, even for today. Um, importantly, of course, he's, he's, he's lived a good age for his, for his life sort of expectancy in ancient Rome. He's in his 60s. So that's, that's doing well. And so he stresses that death isn't to be feared. And this is a theme he engages with in other works. Uh, some of the titles give you an idea of what's on his mind at this period of his life. He writes on ends, on the nature of the gods in his Tusculan disputations. Now, these are called because they're set in, in, in his villa in Tusculan, uh, in Tusculum. But, and I mentioned them earlier, 
He has a set of five chapters, each discussing aspects of death, pain, grief, the emotions, and the big question of whether virtue alone is sufficient for a happy life. So it's, it's, sometimes it's not an easy read, uh, but he draws on a number of Greek ideas. Um, in book one, for example, where he's aiming to remove the fear or contempt of death, he engages with ideas of Plato, and especially Plato's work, Phaedo, where Plato had made Socrates argue at length for the immortality of the soul. Elsewhere, it's the ideas of Stoicism, another influential school of Greek philosophy that informs Cicero's thinking. So in book five, Cicero attempts to prove that virtue alone is sufficient for happiness. He takes a different angle on this question elsewhere in his works, but that book largely coincides with the Stoic view. So I think where I'm going with all of this is that viewed from this angle, Greek philosophy is a resource um, from which Cicero selects to approach the difficulties of his own life and day. And um, the, the one philosophy he has little time time for actually is Epicureanism, which was uh, popular and current in Rome at the time. But pretty much every aspect of Epicureanism gets dissed at some point by Cicero. He, he's, he's really not up for it. But in this later period of his life, Cicero thought he was probably performing a different kind of service to the state um, in, in writing philosophy. As I said, this is Rome's rivalry with Greek thinking. At the same time, um, his output was a replacement for political activity. Um, I'll say a word about his works on rhetoric and oratory as well, because um, you mentioned those. And they've got a, they were produced about 10 years earlier in the 50s BC. And they've got a slightly different focus because at this time he was engaging more directly with his political environment, offering the point of view um, of an experienced statesman. And these were works on the history of Roman oratory, on the ideal orator and, and, and oratorical style. But they didn't just repeat the precepts of rhetorical theory, the kind of thing you could read by picking up Aristotle. He embarked on a philosophical program that placed education and the combination of wisdom and eloquence at the heart of his approach. Likewise, when he wanted to produce a Roman rival of Plato's Republican laws, he didn't just expound the principles of these works to Roman readers. As I said, there's a, a pattern. There are indeed significant parallels, and, and sometimes he cites from them. There's shared themes and metaphors. But Cicero's own constitutional theory is different, and it owes only a little to Plato and much more to post-Aristotelian political theory. I'm sure we'll be discussing that a bit later. Again, because Cicero is always trying to work it out. So effectively, what makes Cicero good to teach with is that in the original context of its production, Cicero's philosophy, all the range of it, is practical philosophy. It is also therapy, especially in the years um, when he's undergoing trauma. And he used philosophy to address topics that were relevant to him. And to that end, he drew a vast amount of ideas and inspiration from the ancient Greeks across all the branches of his learning. And what makes it so useful is that he's not dogmatic about it. His philosophical position was as an academic skeptic. So he rejected certainty in favor of what was plausible, what was likely, and he'll weigh up various viewpoints to arrive at his own considered conclusion of what is most likely. Um, it's brilliant for reconstructing some of the Greek philosophy, but put into its own Roman context, it takes on new life. And if you wanted to use his writings, um, you asked how to teach young people today and um, to live good lives. They are perfectly set up to encourage discussion and debate. If you want to throw Cicero's letters into the mix, 
they can be used to flesh out the problems Cicero faced in the round. They provide the context to the production. Many of his letters are written to his lifelong friend Atticus. And it's it's not that they represent the real Cicero, okay? Their letters always have an agenda. Letters always do. And, and Cicero normally wants something. But they do provide and they expose Cicero's state of mind, as I said, whether that's after the death of Tullia, his daughter, or reaction to life under Caesar's dictatorship. So the letters provide the context of production for the philosophy. And what I've been trying to convey is that because the letters and the philosophical dialogues come from the heart, so to speak, the these endless, timeless problems that Cicero faced in his life, they, they themselves are timeless. And the actual times may have changed, but the topics are as relevant as ever. I think they're fantastic for engaging in, in students, both in issues that they find current today and as a way of approaching the past. As we keep with the theme of Western civilization, for over 2,000 years, we've marked the Ides of March and the death of Caesar in 44 BC as a momentous event. In your excellent biography, Brutus, the noble conspirator, you make the case that Brutus was deeply enigmatic man and that he was largely eclipsed by Julius Caesar, who many consider to be a colossal, uh, colossal icon. Could you discuss how educators should teach the complicated relationship between these two great figures uh, who often represent contrasting political visions, one of limited constitutionalism and the other of autocratic power? <laughs> That's an excellent question, how to teach the complicated relationship. There are probably some important details which we could first use to set the scene. Um, first of all, the, the scene itself. The Romans in the period that we call the late Republic were an imperial people. They had extensive and ever-growing empire, territories over which they exercised military command. This command or imperium, as they called it, was vested in Rome's highest magistrates. These are the two annually elected consuls, eight praetors um, and other men who had been granted positions of authority as the governors of provinces. And what sets the day apart, this is why Julius Caesar strides like a colossus, is that the com com competition for these commands and high office were very much an, a part of the elite way of life. It was competitive to the core and it was intense. A man was expected to do better than his ancestors, to forge a distinguished public career to display courage and leadership in war and to be regarded by his peers and, of course, win military glory. So Caesar embodies all of those aspects and he had won the competition. <laughs> and, and that is how we can start approaching the relationship between Caesar and, and Brutus as well and, and how they um, came to think about their, their political visions. So if that's the broad atmosphere in which they operated, we can then turn to the individuals themselves um, or what we know of them. On the one hand, Brutus, you have a very young and talented individual. Uh, he's from a very noble family um, whose names have sort of echoed throughout Roman history and whose network of political friends includes some of the luminaries of the day. We haven't mentioned Cato the Younger yet, but Cato was an interesting figure around whom a lot of the in a clique, let's call them, of the Senate, often circled. He was also the half-brother of Brutus's mother, Sevilia, and he'd had a guiding role in the young Brutus's education. Brutus's 
own father um, had been killed in civil unrest. Um, it had set in, in train a lifelong hostility between Brutus and Pompey because Pompey was ultimately responsible for the death of the elder Brutus. So Cato had been a guiding influence on, on him. So it meant that a man like Brutus could afford to have high expectations. He could aim for the golden prize of the consulship from a position of some privilege, uh, we might say. On the other hand, you've got Caesar. Um, he's a man of about 15 years older than, than Brutus. But when he'd started out on his career, his chances hadn't looked quite so great and, and nothing was actually assured for him. We tend to think of his family as having a very distinguished tradition because um, his adopted heir, Augustus, carves that tradition out. But at the time that Caesar was hitting the political stage, there's probably a few people that hadn't really heard of him. He came from an aristocratic enough line, but his direct family hadn't actually supplied any consuls for several generations, and his economic resources weren't as strong as they might have been. He also had a way of presenting himself that caused suspicion among more conservative senators. Now, there are no political parties in, in ancient Rome. It's really about factions and individuals, how they group together in networks, break those networks to to meet objectives. But you could label people as populist. It is a very common political uh, term, which is bandied about both as a term of insult um, and as a way of self-representing yourself before the people. So Caesar caused suspicion. And when he met with resistance to his ambition, he'd do anything to get in his way. So we can start seeing that there's going to be some striking differences between these two men. As for their relationship, there were some common ties. For example, both were intellectuals. Uh, one of the things that's possibly less remembered about Caesar by some is how clever he actually was and how um, ingrained he was in the, in, in the academic environment of Rome. And that kind of respect for learning was important in Caesar's relationships. Uh, we know as much from the conversations he had with Cicero as well. The problem as educators is that we don't have a great deal of evidence for Brutus's life before 44 BC. We get snippets of information and then a, an explosion of information for him from 44 to 42 after the death of Caesar. So it's always um, a bit of a reconstruction. But we can build a picture from the interactions and circumstances we do know about. So as an educator, one of the first things that you'd probably throw into the mix would be the so-called first triumvirate, which was a pact of power made between Caesar and two other uh, big names, Pompey and Crassus, in around 60 BC, whereby the three men pooled their resources and really dominated the political scene, at least until Crassus's death in 53. It wasn't far from being effectively a tyranny of three. Um, and for these years, we do have some hard evidence of Brutus's reaction. He minted coins with the images of his ancestors, Lucius Junius Brutus and Servilius Ahala. Now, Lucius Junius Brutus was famous for expelling the kings and effectively founding the Roman uh, Republican form of government in 509 BC, so hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But this was still passed down in the, the tales of Roman history because it was so impor important. Servilia Ahala on Brutus's mother's side of the family had killed a fellow Roman, uh, a man called Spurius Milius in 439 BC on the grounds that he was aspiring towards tyranny. So on both sides of his family, Brutus has got famous 
champions of liberty or tyrannicides. And he starts promoting that in the public domain by putting their images, their faces on the coins that he circulates into the hands of the population. So the coins of Brutus um, are a fantastic educational resource to help us consider what he stood for, how he promoted himself as a politician at the earlier stage of his career before the assassination of Caesar. So we can start seeing ideological differences. Much of Brutus's activity might have been um, aimed at Pompey. As I mentioned earlier, he absolutely hated Pompey. He didn't speak to him, apparently, um, for, for the large part of his life. Um, but that that's where he was going. It, he was very much pitching himself against Pompey as well as the other triumvirs and what they stood for. I should probably explain here something about liberty, because it was one of those catch-all words. Everyone claims to be representing liberty of a sort, and it meant different things to different people. For Brutus and those who supported the authority of the Senate, liberty was the freedom to participate in electoral campaigns, um, the chance to have a go at being consul. It was the freedom to keep doing what the noble families had always done using the traditional apparatus of state. But men like Caesar, who was often oppressed by these men and indeed often oppressed them, championed the liberty of the people and they used other means to power. So this is where we're going with the different visions of um, constitutional thinking. For example, a man like Caesar, who wanted to build uh, his career off the back of popularity with the people, could use the apparatus of the people's assemblies and representatives of the people, the tribunes of the plebs, effectively to bypass the Senate. What's really interesting about the Roman constitution is that the Roman Senate, although it's the only permanent organ of state, it actually has very le little legislative clout. It passes bills which get presented to the people who vote on them. But what a lot of politicians realised, and men like Caesar took full advantage of it, was that actually you could bypass the Senate and put them straight to the people anyway, and the people's law could pass as binding. So you get politicians really using popularity to pass legislation, shunning the Senate. And this is the different ideologies surrounding liberty. Was it the freedom to participate in a narrow clique of families that had always dominated Roman politics? Or did real liberty, real authority lie with the people? And the different ideologies surrounding liberty is important to the relationship between Caesar and Brutus because they're effectively on, on opposite sides of the thinking. And another thing that's important to their relationship is a civil war between Pompey and Caesar. Um, after the death of Crassus uh, in 53, the, the third triumvir, as we can call him, there's only Pompey and Caesar left of the original triumvirate. And the two men tried to continue supporting each other's policies and priorities, but gradually Pompey moved more to the side of Cato and his contacts, adopting a more traditional Republican approach which meant Caesar was pushed in the opposite direction. So Pompey becomes more of an aristocratic noble representative. They claim to be representing the cause of the Republic, whereas Caesar claims to be starting civil war to, to protect his own dignity, effectively, he tells us, as well as the liberty of the people. And because they couldn't cooperate, Rome spiralled into conflict. Um, and Brutus, even though he'd hated Pompey, initially felt compelled really to side with him because he represented the Republican cause. Now, when Caesar's forces crushed those of Pompey in the Battle of Pharsalus, Brutus was saved by Caesar. Uh, one reason 
is that Sevilla, Brutus's mother, had been romantically involved with Caesar. Uh, they'd never married, but he seems to have held her in some affection and he always looked out for Brutus as well. Um, later stories would even circulate to suggest Brutus may have been their illegitimate uh, love child, but we'll leave that one to, to one side for now. Um, but when Brutus defected to Caesar's side, he was the first man that we know of who received an official pardon by Caesar, whereas Cato and others continued the fight in Africa and Spain. So after the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC, the dynamics of Caesar and Brutus's relationship change um, irrevocably. Brutus owes his life now to, to Caesar and he has sided with him. And Caesar treats him with grace. He gives him positions uh, in his Senate um, sort of as, as, as a magistrate and he, he gets rewards. And this is where things get really interesting from a, an educator's perspective, because the relationship between Brutus and Caesar actually featured in ancient classroom discussions as well in the form of mock debates. So we're, we're told that some of the topics for discussion in class would have been things like, should Marcus Brutus have accepted the gift of his life from the divine Caesar? Or what reasoning did Brutus employ in killing Caesar? And whether you're teaching Brutus and Caesar through the lens of ancient history, philosophy, Shakespeare, even HBO's Rome, if, if, if that's where you get your, the, the knowledge <laughs> from, um, these are important questions. Um, and, and for a way of thinking about possible answers, there are several fantastic primary sources. So we can actually get into the mindset. Um, and I mentioned these in, in the book, so I'll just skirt over them here. First of all, there's a pair of letters exchanged between Cicero and one of Caesar's friends, a man called Matthias, where they discuss the death of Caesar from contrasting points of view. Matthias says, I might not have liked what he was doing, but he was my friend. And anyway, Matthias says, you haven't really proved that he was a tyrant. So we get the opposite point of view presented in our ancient sources. A second resource is Cicero's treatise on duties, which I mentioned earlier, which weighs up the conflicting demands of various duties, including whether or not you should kill a tyrant and, and importantly, what to do if your tyrant, if that tyrant is your friend. Um, and then thirdly, for a different point of view entirely, there is the later work of the Stoic philosopher Seneca on benefits, which was written in the mid first century AD, where, well, where he basically says Brutus got it all wrong on every single count and, and that he shouldn't have therefore killed uh, Caesar. And these debates have echoed throughout the centuries, uh, whether you want to be like Dante and put Brutus in and Cassius in the inner circles or hell or uh, have him be your guide in Gulliver's travels as the, the morally upright man. The different opinions of Brutus have changed with the tides of history. And so from these sources, you can really gain some of the key ideas around the contrasting political visions of the day, uh, not just Brutus and Caesar. It's really what was Caesar doing? What did he stand for? And, and what did Brutus think he was doing? You've mentioned Cato and Cicero. Of course, you've talked about Brutus. Could you explain the larger significant ideas uh, or ideals of these men and the significance of posterity uh, of the Senate and as a constitutional guardian against Caesar's imperial powers? Sure. And I think more than any other, Cato became seen as the real symbol of resistance to tyranny and oppression. Um, Cicero and Brutus managed to recover their reputations in the way that they too came to be remembered as martyrs to the Republican cause. But we must remember that they had both accepted Caesar's pardon and had tried to find a place for themselves in, in Caesar's autocratic Rome. Cato, on the other hand, received 
overnight fame and status as a legend and because his suicide at Utica was uh, self-inflicted so that he didn't have to face Caesar and potentially have to accept his pardon. And this bespoke of, of real opposition. So the Cato legend was happening already in his own time, but it happened the second he died. And there are ways in which this gets passed around. There's Caesar writes a treatise called the Anti-Cato because he wants to rebut the pamphlets that are going around saying what a great man Cato was. Of course, in life, the three men that you mentioned, um, Cicero, Brutus and Cato, actually disagreed on, on points of detail quite often. On several occasions, Cicero has expressed his frustration at Cato's inflexibility. And, and that includes his famous complaint that Cato spoke in the Senate as if, as if, as if he were in the Republic of Plato, as opposed to the sewers of Romulus. Um, it's like, get back to real life, man. Um, he didn't really stand back um, and, and always admire Cato. Cicero also had many justifiable complaints against Brutus, who he discovered was running an, an elaborate extortion loan scheme over in the Greek Eastern territories. Um, in his early career, Brutus also appears to have hung around or have been linked with some of the younger generation who we know Cato disapproved of. So we can imagine the conflict at home there. But the largest civic ideal they all shared and which they came to exemplify was indeed this privileging of senatorial authority and the way that it served as a check on autocratic and arbitrary government. Now, how efficient or fair the Senate actually was in exercising its authority is a trickier question. But certainly, it was possible for later critics of the empire, the sort of the system of government that emerges after Augustus, to lament the end of the Republic. And they could do so by harking back to the ideal in which Republican liberty went hand in hand with the existence of a virtuous Senate. So the Senate was seen as bound together in its virtue, performing executive duty to preserve the liberty of the Roman Republic. So I think the significance for posterity really goes back to the Senate's role within the overall scheme of things. There was no written constitution, but observers of Roman political practice, going back to the Greek historian Polybius, who was a very early observer of, of Rome on its rise, they saw the Senate as the aristocratic element in the mixed constitution. And this idea of a mixed constitution is one which balances ideas of democracy, aristocracy, and, and monarchy. From this perspective, the democratic element was provided for by the allowance that was made for popular participation in voting and in the assemblies, as I mentioned earlier, they could ratify bills. On the other hand, the people didn't have much power because they could only vote on issues that were presented to them by a magistrate. So there's always these uh, give and takes, pros and cons. The consuls provided the monarchical element in this mixed constitution. And even though they were only meant to govern for a year at a time, it was seen that they held the greatest of authority. And this theory has proved extremely influential in understanding Rome's constitutional arrangements. And it was central to Cicero's political analysis as well. And we're coming back uh, full circle now, of course, to the ideas of representative government that opinion that underpinned John Locke's and others' ideas of a social contract uh, between the government and the people they governed. So we talked earlier about the importance of uh, liberalism in the concept and the construct of um, a Western civilization. 
But building on Locke's discussion, it was really Montesquieu who argued for the separation of powers as we know it today. That is for different branches of government, their executive, their legislative and their judicial functions uh, to be assigned to different bodies. Um, and, and this is the idea of the checks and balances so that we can provide against anything that might infringe on political liberty. And this idea is fundamental because it determines the political organisation of many countries. But as I've been showing, it's got ancient precedent. Plato, Aristotle, Polybius and Cicero all stress the supremacy of a mixed constitution and the need for a separation of powers within the government. In the customs of the Roman Republic, the Senate, uh, you called it a, a guardian, a custodian, represented this executive branch. And Montesquieu directly cites Polybius when he discusses their role, uh, which in the period of the Middle Republic, when Polybius was sort of reflecting on it, he says was so great that foreign nations actually imagined Rome was an aristocracy. But I've mentioned Polybius here for a reason, because it takes us back to the, the people that we talk about. Because among the works that Brutus actually published in his life and, and which we've lost, there, there was an epitome of Polybius's histories, um, a compendium or summary in Latin. And Brutus's biographer, Plutarch, tells us that he was busy working away at this sort of summary of Polybius's histories in the evenings while he was pitched at camp in Pharsalus, the, the battle between Pompey and Caesar. And he wasn't the only one who worried what constitution they'd be left with after the civil war. Cicero thought that the outcome would be a tyranny for sure, regardless of whether it was Caesar or Pompey who won. And Cato, as we know, took his own life before ever having to witness it. So the three men, of course, failed to save the authority of the Senate in their own day. It didn't really manage to survive as the, the, the guardian to provide the check. But the rough idea of the Senate as one of the ways in which arbitrary power could potentially be checked is at least one that we can recognise and which we can link to the ideals that Cato, Cicero and, and Brutus either preached or practised in their lifetimes. Excellent answers. Uh, would you be so kind to read a passage of your choice? I think I'll just start with the opening paragraph of chapter one. Now in, in the prologue, I sort of explain a little bit more about sort of the history of the, the assassination. I start bang on with Caesar being killed. Um, but in chapter one, I really want to focus on becoming Brutus, the idea of him stepping into the limelight and, and stepping into his legend. So I start with a, a subsection on image and identity. I'll read that part, just the first paragraph. In the centre of Medulanum in Cisalpine Gaul, now ancient Milan, there once stood a bronze statue of Brutus, probably erected in Brutus's own lifetime. The Emperor Augustus, upon seeing it, was said to have frowned at the effigy of his former enemy. After all, Augustus was Caesar's great nephew and adopted son, and Brutus had killed Caesar. Yet for others, the statue was laden with symbolism. Brutus was the founder and defender of our laws and liberties, cried one impassioned advocate towards the end of the first century BC. As he pointed to the statue and lamented the state of Italy, where he thought freedom of expression was being curtailed. From this point of view, the assassination had been a glorious deed. Philosophy and principles had joined forces with military strength to remove a dictator. This had been Brutus's particular achievement, to be remembered not just as a man of action, but as a man of virtue. Of all the men who colluded to kill Caesar, it was said that Brutus was the only noble conspirator. 
that's the end of the paragraph. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Tempest. That was um, amazing. What a fascinating conversation. You've taught us so much. And we feel so fortunate to have had you with us today. And I know our, I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. Thank you. It's been great to be hosted. And my tweet of the week comes from Education Week um, from March 15th, 21. And it says, see what the huge COVID-19 aid deal Biden has signed means for education. And when you take a look at the chart, you just see a lot of numbers. And in particular, <laughs> they're showing how much uh, is going to be allocated to different um, line items in a budget. So uh, at the high end, you know, you're looking at $6 billion uh, going to minimum learning recovery, $1.2 billion summer enrichment. I'm glad to see that. I'm on the board of the um, After School Alliance, and it's something that we supported. So glad to see that in there. Uh, we also have $1.2 billion for um, after school programs as well. We have uh, $609 million for administrative costs, $3 billion for uh, in remaining funds, homeless students, $800 million, special education state grants, $2.5 billion, and $2.7 going to private schools. I'm going to use your word, unprecedented, and even if it sounds overused, we have to think who is going to pick up the tab 20 years from now, oh. and what are our children going to say when they say, wait a minute, somebody's got to pay for this. And printing money isn't that. But that's another conversation for another show. This is a great breakdown. Check it out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, it's You know you're in strange territory when you're trying to make a chart of, of all the money and you can't fit all the zeros <laughs> on the page. But you know, the, other, the other thing is, Gerard, it's like um, three words, return on investment. I, that's what I'm worried about. Like how are we going to get districts to think in terms of return on investments for kids and for families and for teachers. So I hope we can continue talking about that. Um, I bet that our that next week's guest is going to have something to say about that because, you know, we're talking, Gerard, to Dr. Eric Handeshek. <laughs> so um, uh-huh. I think we're going to be in very good, in very good company to, um, to have a conversation about this. And, and hopefully he can help us put this all in perspective. So I am going to be looking forward to that. Gerard, until next week, um, stay, I, I was going to say, stay hot, but I let's stay cool. I don't know. We opened with heat kind of weird though. Ooh. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and be well, my friend and have fun, um, riding horses. You mentioned to me at the outset of the show that you were going to do some horseback riding or that you have been. So enjoy yes. yourself and we will connect next week. Thanks a lot. Take care. Right. Take care. Jordan.